0: and welcome to the Vertiguise show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguise. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Hellblazer, Preacher, and today, Sandman. And we are about a third of the way through the Kindly Ones, maybe a half. Almost half. I think we'll be over half by the time we're done today. Yeah, we're starting a little before half, and we're going to end up a little after half. Because it's a 13-parter? A 13-part story. It's a 13-parter, and we're going to be looking at parts 6 and 7 today. Now, previously on Sandman, a whole lot of stuff. You really have to know pretty much the entire series (laughs) to understand these two issues. I think it might be more efficient to recap what's been happening with a character when we get to that character. Okay. So, Sandman number 62, The Kindly Ones, six was written by Neil Gaiman. It features art, okay, this is complicated, by Glyn Dillon, Charles Vest, Dean Ormston, and Disraeli, with colors by Daniel Vazo and a cover by Dave McKeon. On the cover, we've got a multitude of hands reaching for something inside a ring of light. Yeah, there's kind of a ring of fire here. Like, what happens if you take, like, a lighter flame, and... Yeah, it's like a long exposure photo. Oh, and do a long exposure, yeah. Okay, so this issue, as I mentioned, featured four artists. Now, I did a little research on what the breakpoints are here. According to the Grand Comics Database at comics.org, Glenn Dillon drew the first Rose segment. Charles Vess drew the tale and inked his own work. Uh, Dean Ormston and Disraeli inked the frame story. And Ormston, according to comic book resources, Ormston took over the pencils on the Rose pages after the frame story. And there's actually a pronounced art shift there. More shadow, more abstraction. Kind of Mignola esque. The figures are almost grotesque. So there's a lot going on with art in this issue. Yeah. Are any of these artists the regular artist who's been doing the rest of the series? No. Mark Hempel has been most of this story. That was who it was. Yeah. And he comes back for part seven, right? I think so. That's Hempel again. Or yeah. At least it looks like it. So the art in this issue is very different than last issue, although it still seems to be attempting a little bit of the thick line block of color approach. It's more detailed, more realistic. Rose comes off more expressive and a little bit more feminine. Yeah, she's definitely sexier, which yeah. is which is an interesting choice. Sure, I think there's I think there's story reasons for that, and I don't really understand what they are, so we'll have to talk about that. Okay. So we pick up on Rose flying to England and having a bad time of it. Have we talked about her hair yet? Yeah, we have. We mentioned how when we first saw her in this story arc, her hair was Different than we had ever seen it before, but still evocative of the way we remembered it, yeah, here it's red with a streak of blonde, which reminds us that we've seen her with both of those colors. yeah, her initial portrayal in doll's House was blonde with a streak of rainbow, right? I think that's right, yeah, yeah, and she had a dream on the plane about what she calls the old days in Florida, which is in when she was in that house in the dolls house. Right, with Hal and Chantal and Gilbert and everyone. Rose has been taking care of her friend Zelda, which was Chantal's girlfriend, it's complicated, sister, uh, okay, I wasn't sure, who is dying of AIDS. And Rose was also the babysitter for baby Daniel Hall, who was magically put to sleep, apparently. She was, and Daniel was kidnapped. Right. The guy in the window seat next to her is reading a porno mag, the same one the whole flight. How do you read the same porn mag for 12 hours, she says. Yeah. And she points out that he's a creep, which it's very clear that that's partially because of his behavior, but also partially because of his personal attributes. Yeah. Which makes it a little bit judgy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's a very large man, and apparently he smells bad. Yeah, he he has splotches on his shirt. He's apparently somewhat unkempt. She has a gross experience at customs as the customs agent pulls her maybe I'll get lucky lacy panties, her words, from her suitcase and the porn fan happens to see them. Oh, okay. So that was part of what I didn't understand. She said that the, the creep from the plane had seen her panties. Yeah. And I missed in the art where it's because the customs guy is holding them up. Right. I thought that like he somehow saw them while she was on the plane. And I was, like, just, like, assumed that he he saw them while she was asleep. Yeah, or, like, when she was getting up or sitting down or something. Right. I I didn't know. But I thought that she was wearing the maybe-I'll-get-lucky panties. And I was like, well, why does she think she might get lucky in this story? Well, she apparently packed them. She packed them, but she... She didn't wear them on the plane. She's not wearing them on the plane, and she's not wearing them to the old folks' home. Which makes makes more sense. Although she is wearing, you know, a mini skirt and stockings, Mm -hmm. which... Which, again, she's somewhat sexier than we normally see her, and if there's a story reason for it, I don't understand what that is. Okay, should we talk about the fact that it's sort of been mentioned Rose is physically locked at 17? Right. Yeah, ever since her first experience with Morpheus, she hasn't experienced any aging, which is something that comes up a couple of times in these issues. Right. But she's nonetheless depicted as having an active sex life. Yeah. So that's maybe a little weird. Not on her side, but maybe on a creative side. So waiting for her at the airport is Mr. Holdaway. This is Jack Holdaway, the nephew of the Mr. Holdaway she met before, who has died. Yeah, and she says she was looking forward to seeing Mr. Holdaway's old jaguar, but instead he drives her off in an Austin which is not nearly as luxurious a car. Right. And he spends the whole ride talking without saying anything. Yeah, I liked that. Rose is continually comparing this trip to the last one. And we've also learned that she hasn't really physically aged since her last trip to England. She's comparing her expectations to reality. There's a lot of travelogue detail in her narration with real details mixed in with her memories, which gives it something of a dreamlike quality. I wonder if maybe that's part of why she's changed her hair is that like, you know, since she's not experiencing aging, she wants to she wants to experience some kind of change to her appearance so right. she changes her hair. And they make it to this old folks home that is very grand and stately looking indeed. Now I understood this to be in fact Fony Rig, the house at Witchcross. But she's they go inside and she's introduced to like the nurse and the investor and stuff. Yes, that's true. I thought there was a scene where she was looking through the big oval window, but maybe that's a different house and a different issue. Yeah. No, I don't think that that's where she is here. We notice the checkerboard floor here as Rose and Jack walk into the old folks home. Yeah, that just matches what we saw the last time she was here. Right. She went into this... a, She went into a broom closet that had a checkerboard floor, and that's where she encountered the Hecate. Right. And she is actually in England on a mission from her departed grandmother who told her to meet her here. Right. She's supposed to receive some kind of message. Yeah. The young holdaway comments, it's a funny business, sleeping your life away. Like that Robin Williams film. Oh, yes. He's referring, yeah, he's referring to the movie Awakenings. Yeah. With Robert De Niro. She finds out that the, the staff of the place referred to her grandmother, Unity Kincaid, as Sleeping Beauty. Right. Now, Unity was suffering from the sleeping sickness, which was a sleepy sickness? Sleepy sickness. Sleepy sickness, which was a side effect of Morpheus being in captivity. Some people had their relationship with sleep messed up. In Unity's case, she slept all the time. Right. Rose sort of politely tries to lose her escort, so Jack politely decides to introduce her to the duty nurse and then go get her checked into the hotel. But instead, he finds the owner of the nursing home at Witchcross, Paul McGuire. Yeah, Paul McGuire insists that he's not actually the owner, just representative of one of the investors. Right. Paul Maguire was a character we met in the very first issue. Oh, yes. Paul Maguire was the lover of Alex Burgess, the son of Roderick Burgess, who imprisoned Morpheus. Right, for 80 years. Rose casually tells a lie that she's a writer here to get a sense of the place for a book on her grandmother. Yeah, I mean, is that even a lie? Pretty much as soon as you say you're a writer, I guess you are one. <laughs> well, she does say that she's writing something about... Oh, yeah. A couple of issues back, she mentioned that she's working on a writing project that involves taping and watching old sitcoms. Right. I do remember that. Paul informs her that her grandmother, after spending most of her life asleep, woke up and was very vital and young at heart, which came off very ironic to him. Yes. I'm afraid that at the time I found it difficult to appreciate the irony, because someone that Paul loves is sleeping his life away. Right. Yes, there is a second sleeper. If the reader is anything like me, they haven't caught on yet. To the fact that this Paul is that Paul? Right. Okay. But that it'll become clear by the end of this issue. Anyway, Paul gives Rose permission to poke around the grounds, and Jack agrees to come back for her in three hours. Yeah, now she heads up by herself, she goes to the now empty room where her grandmother stayed, and then she ducks into the broom closet. Right. And it just looks kind of disappointingly ordinary. Yeah, she actually asks, is anybody here as she comes into the broom closet, but it's just empty. But she does meet someone here, someone who comes up behind as she's investigating this. You can tell me off if I'm asking too many questions, but it's not often there's a lassie in the broom cupboard. (laughs) Well, it's kind of a long story, Rose says. Now, at this point, we've had an old lady, a maternal-looking nurse character, and a young woman, Rose. Yeah, I was hesitant to count this as a Hecate appearance because it's actually more a room full of old women than one old woman, one mother, and one maiden. Mm -hmm. But she guides Rose down to the day room where she meets a couple of other old ladies and she says some kind of racist stuff on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she tells some of her life story here that she had a, a black lover during the war and gave birth to a baby girl, but her mother made her put the girl up for adoption because she was black. And she hoped no one would take her, but someone did. Yeah. So, yeah, she's not an out-and-out racist, but she uses a lot of politically incorrect language for black people in the course of telling this story. Yeah. This old lady, whose name is Amelia Krupp, introduces us to two more. Magda Treadgold. Did I say Magda or Magda? Magda Treadgold. And a woman named Helena who says her last name is unpronounceable. You said Magda every time except the last time. Did I say Madga? The last time you said Madge. Her name is, is Madgear Treadgold. <laughs> <laughs> Magda Treadgold. And Helena, who mentions that she is from Greece at some point, might be a reference to, or might even be, Helena Cosmatos, Lida's mother. That seems possible. Remember when Lida was doing that uh, job interview with Eric the Jerk, he said that her mother was mysteriously missing. So the old ladies tell her that they like to spend their time telling stories. Somebody comments that even the oldest stories are new to someone, which was a line I liked. Mm-hmm. And that... they sort of, before they get into it, there's a long story here that makes up a lot of this issue that we're about to get into. Mm-hmm. But before they do that, they kind of do a quick telling of the original Sleeping Beauty tale. Yeah, which is obviously relevant because of Unity. Right, it very much mirrors Unity Kincaid's story. In the original version, before it was bowdlerized, Sleeping Beauty wasn't woken with a kiss. She was raped in her sleep and woken by her children after giving birth to them in her sleep. Right. And this, of course, mirrors Unity's experience of being raped in her sleep by the endless one named Desire. Yeah, which resulted in the birth of Rose's mother. Magda also mentions here, she talks about memory. She says she can't remember her grandchildren's names from their visit yesterday, but she remembers parts of her childhood in vivid detail, and that's where she gets these nursery rhymes and fairy tales. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. So they are going to tell Rose, or she is going to tell, the story of the flying children. Yeah, and as we transition into the flying children, we transition into beautiful Charles Vess artwork. Yeah, and it's worth noting here that this part is less of a comic book and more of a storybook, where there's only one illustration per page and no, like, no real, like, action. Yeah, I noticed that too, the storybook page structure and the storybook font, although we are actually still getting Helena's dialogue, not a storybook telling of the story, complete with interruptions from the audience. Right. Or, excuse me, it's Magda's dialogue, isn't it? Yeah so there was a man who loved the ladies and he came upon a beautiful woman bathing in the river and took her clothes away right he makes her promise to be his lady love to get the clothes back now we've heard something like this before wasn't it the muse right the muse calliope yeah in her case there was a scroll that she had to leave on the on the shore and if it was taken that person would gain possession of her essentially right and so she was kind of imprisoned in a, in a similar way to how this guy comes to sort of take over the life of this young woman. Mm-hmm. So she agrees to be his lady love, provided he marry her in the first church they come to. He promises he'll marry her if he sets foot in a church. Yeah, and the devil he'd step into a church ever again, he swore under his breath. If he breaks the promise, he says, the worms will eat him. He thinks that'll happen anyway, right? and their children will grow wings and fly away. And no great matter if they do, he thought. So they come to the first church, and he says he doesn't want to get married there because the vicar is a sick man, and besides, he's off a hunting. She said nothing, but she looked at him as if her heart would break. When they came to the next church, her belly was already beginning to swell. Let's be married here, she says. I'm not going into that church, he says, for the vicar's a drunkard, and no better than he should be, and the sexton's no particular friend of mine neither. Yep, she gets mad, and he hits her and knocks her down, because he's really not a nice guy. Her face is bleeding when she gets up, so that's how it is, she says. That's how it is, he tells her. She wants a place to rest, so he has her wait while he goes ahead to find one. Yeah, and he goes into this cottage, and there's an old lady... Living there. In some tellings of the story, the old lady is a witch. Other times, she's just an old lady. But either way, the man smothers her, buries her in the backyard, and tells his wife or tells this woman that the cottage is theirs now, that they've inherited it. Yeah, I noticed the story does begin referring to her as wife, even though he refused to go into a church and marry her. Right. So he tells her that his aunt has just died and left us her cottage, and they move in there. He leaves her in the cottage to wander the countryside, but he does come back from time to time. Right, we're told he wants to continue tomcatting around. (laughs) Yes. He comes back from time to time to keep her fed and to see the girls. She gives birth to three girls, and despite his gadabout manner, he does love his daughters. Right, they're the apples of his eye. Then one day he comes back and the girls are gone. He asks where they are. Gathering berries, she says. In the spring, he says. There aren't any berries in the spring, dear. I don't know if they have spring where you come from. But she says nothing and the children don't come home. But when night comes, he says to her, where's the children? Off fishing, she tells him. The baby too, he asks her, but she pretended she couldn't hear him. In the morning, he woke her up. Where are the children? Where are my girls? They've flown away, she told him. Flown away? He shakes her to make her tell him the truth, but she won't change her tale. So he fetches the axe in from outside, and he chops her up into bits. That's an overreaction. Yeah. But then he looks outside, and he sees the girls, the oldest, the middle, and the youngest, all flying. They come down from the sky, and they come into the cottage. And they see their mother dead, so they fall on him, and they kill him. Well, don't forget about the whale. They let out a whale. Yes, they let out a whale deep and long and sad. And then they fall on him and kill him. And they kill him the way that birds do. Hmm, Yeah, they sort of peck and, and rip him to death. Where they all kind of descend on him at once and, and tear him to pieces. Like a parliament of rooks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then they flew off into the sky and nobody saw them again. Yeah, the story is done with them here. <laughs> um, as soon as he was sure that he was dead, he got up and shook himself and looked around. And there waiting for him on the bed was his wife with long claws out. And her eyes blazing like a green cat ready to spring. now the illustration shows us that this isn't the case, but when I read with long claws Out, I just imagined like Wolverine <laughs> right like, <laughs> like he's sure he's dead, and so he's gonna he's getting up to shake it off, and uh, he looks at the bed, and his wife's like, "Revenge bub." <laughs> No, this is more like Sabretooth, because she's got the really long fingers that extend into claws. Lady Deathstrike. Deathstrike, yes, it's exactly Lady Deathstrike. And she's got this wild gray hair that casts her face in shadow. It's a really awesome, creepy drawing. So he gets up and runs away, and he tries to find a place to die. The thunder won't kill him because he's already dead. The fire can't burn him up because the chill of death puts it out. The water can't drown him because his face has already turned blue. Sinner Man, where are you going to run to? It is a bit like that, yeah. So he throws himself on the Midden Heap and prays for the worms to eat him, as he promised they would when he died. Yeah, he puts out one hand and finds himself touching the skeleton hand of the old woman he'd killed for the cottage. And then a giant worm with his wife's face crawls up to him, driving off all the other worms. He begs her to just kill him, but no, she says. A meal this good must never be hurried, she says. Just hold still, boy, and let me enjoy myself. And she takes her first gentle bite from his cheek with her sharp, sharp teeth. And that's the story, as my mother used to tell it. Amelia hates that story. Magda wonders what happened to the children. Yeah, Amelia objects that the story is horrible, but then says all deaths are horrible. So she answers her own objection, which doesn't really make any sense. Right. And Helena points out that they're made up people, but Magda says that doesn't mean they don't have stories. Yeah, that's a very Sandman line. (laughs) Yeah, there's actually a fictional book we see later in this story arc entitled When Real Things Happen to Imaginary People. Now, this is Helena, who says that the man in the story, he deserved it. It was an act of revenge. He had killed and lied. She says, acts of revenge are sanctified. I have also done it. I spent two decades looking for the man who had killed a person I loved. I hounded him for year after year after year across the world. I found him at last in Brighton, in England, in the winter. A gray, sad town. It is a cold place, England. Really? What did you do when you found him? Eventually I killed him. First, though, I destroyed his life. You're kidding, right? Joking with you? Of course. If I had really killed a man, would I tell anyone? Back on the subject of unity, Magda says a woman shouldn't have to sleep her life away. Women are about reality, not dreams. Amelia adds, Women are about waking, Rose. Yes, and then we have a sort of a Hecate moment here. Yes. Amelia says, As mothers, we wake them from nothingness to existence. As maidens, we wake them to the joys and miseries of adulthood. Wake them to the worlds of lust and responsibility. And Magda says, And when their time's up, it's always us has to wash them for the last time and we lay them out for the wake. But honestly, it must be very dull for you sitting here with three old women yattering on about silly old lady things. And so they give Rose leave to go wandering through the house. Yep. She wanders around. She finds a ring. Yes, she goes back to her grandmother's empty room and finds a ring. Concludes that it was her grandmother's. In the empty, dark hallway, she sees a cat and then an owl at the window. Yeah, it's storming pretty good outside now, and this owl is lit up by lightning quite dramatically. Yeah, now this is such a kind of, like, master class in comics, Mm -hmm. I think, this page. Because, you know, it's amazing how, like, somebody who's not in command of the medium can give you a page full of, like mutants fighting each other tooth and claw Mm -hmm. and it's not compelling at all okay and then someone who is in command of the medium can give you a page of a girl walking down a hallway and seeing an owl at the window and it's so much more suspenseful (laughs) (laughs) well put so paul shows up and they chat about the owl paul being paul mcguire right owner of the nursing home Right, the investor (laughs) of the nursing home, and, as we are about to find out, the lover of Alex Burgess. Yeah, so mentioning the owl leads him to discuss the fact that the Hundred Acre Wood, the real one, is quite nearby. Ashdown Forest. As a child, his mother would take him there, and they'd look for the original piglet toy, which was lost there by Christopher Robin. I wish I'd done something like that as a kid. All the dreams you have, looking for Piglet. It doesn't matter that you never find it. It's the dreams that keep you going. I suppose the point you grow up is the point you let the dreams go. Yeah, to me that resonates interestingly with Rose's comment at the end of Doll's House. That she had to decide, and then she woke up, to move on with her life. To treat the things that had happened in her dreams as just dreams. Yeah, it definitely calls back to that. Paul invites Rose to see something. To which she replies, one of my favorite lines in the series, You're not some kind of pervert, are you? I am the very best kind of pervert. In the words of the immortal Quentin himself, I am one of the stately homos of old England. Miss Walker, I assure you, you have nothing to fear from me. Paul is referring to English writer-actor Quentin Crisp, who coined the phrase in his 1968 book, The Naked Civil Servant. Yeah, and they go on kind of a digression here about words. Rose asks, You're gay? and he says you know i've never liked gay as a synonym for queer renders a perfectly decent word or to combat lost philological battle though there then there's the continual misuse of the word hopefully as well and anticipate to mean expect but i'm burbling aren't i paul quotes the tempest by way of broaching a subject we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep and he takes rose to meet another sleeper, like Unity Kincaid, somebody who's been ceaselessly asleep for a long time. And we recognize that this is Alex Burgess, which is when we realize that Paul is the Paul we met before, Alex's lover. Now, Alex was sentenced to eternal waking by Morpheus for his role in Morpheus's imprisonment. Right, an endless nightmare of waking into yet another nightmare. And he's been asleep since Morpheus was freed back in Sandman number one, which we're told has been five years. And that's more or less real time, right? This issue yeah. probably came out about five years later. Yep. Paul introduces Alex as the love of his life. He laments that his father's legacy forced Alex into sorcery when he would have made a fine professor or literary critic. Oh, I wrote down in my notes, oh shit, it's this old shitbag. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of mean. <laughs> Well, Alex was a real douche. <laughs> Alex was kind of a shit. Not as professionally, competently a shit as Roderick Burgess. Y- yeah, I think he was like equally evil, but less competent. <laughs> yeah, he sort of never knew what to do with Morpheus, so he didn't release him for 50 years or so after his father died. And, and that's how he got in the situation he's in. I just remember he says, I hate you you're nothing. You're just a tiny little naked man. And then he turns and and wheels himself out of the room. Mm -hmm. And that's when he, he breaks the containment circle. He does. Isn't it? That's the way I remember the first issue is that he gives, he gives Morpheus this whole speech about how he hates him. And as he turns to go is when he accidentally breaks the circle that's been keeping Morpheus contained. Yeah. He also says, I could torture you. Don't think I couldn't. He's been asleep for over five years. I just hope his dreams are pleasant ones. Do you think they are? No, not really. Tearful Paul points out that Unity woke the same day Alex fell asleep. Rose says to hold on hope. If Unity woke up, Alex will too. Never let go of your dreams, eh? Exactly. Miss Walker? Sorry to intrude, Mr. Holdaway is downstairs. He says whenever you're ready. Yep, Jack's here for Rose. Before she leaves, Paul offers to show her around the creepy old manor house. Now that's the house at Witchcross. Right. The house... Formerly belonging to Joanna Constantine, which became the property of the Burgess family and at which Morpheus was held for 80 years in the basement. Right, and this is where he has an interesting line We're none of us as young as we were. I am, replies Rose. But when he asks her, Sorry? She just says, Sure, sounds like fun, referring to the tour of the manor house. She takes off the ring that she found and gives it to Paul. Actually, she puts it on Alex's pillow, next to what is clearly the original piglet. Oh, I did not notice that at all. But yeah, I think you're right. Rose leaves, Paul still holding Alex's hand. Sins of the fathers, eh, old fellow? Sins of the fathers. So that might be the longest that we've ever spent on a single regular-sized issue. (laughs) There's a lot going on. But that brings us to Sandman issue sixty-three, The Kindly Ones Part Seven, written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Mark Hempel, colors by Daniel Vazzo, and a cover by Dave McKeon. A stylized drawing of Medusa with little red snakes pointing forward for a better look. Yeah, this is a drawing of Medusa that rather invokes Lucifer. Hmm. Okay. Because Lucifer has wild red hair in this. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's true. In this version of the story. I just like the lifelike detail, the way the snakes are kind of craning forward, like, ooh, what's over there? Yeah. So we open on a cab with a Virgin Mary on the dash? Yeah, we actually open on the Virgin Mary before we realize that the Virgin Mary is a toy on the dashboard of a cab. Yep. And in that cab is Thessaly from A Game of You. Right. Thessaly is an ancient Greek witch. She is very, very old. She's pretty evil. (laughs) Yeah, she's not like. She's not super malevolent. She's just incredibly impatient. Yes, she's impatient. She's ruthless. She doesn't care what she fucks up to get what she wants. Right, she doesn't particularly have bad intentions. (laughs) She just has a very, like, ends justify the means way about her. Yeah, and she is eternally youthful enough to consistently pass herself off as a college student. The last we saw her was in a game of You, where. She got mad that the cuckoo, which was the spirit in Barbie's dreams, tried to kill her, so she went into the dreams to get her revenge. Right. And here she is trying to bribe the cab driver. She's looking for, well, maybe I shouldn't say who she's looking for yet, but she wants to bribe the cab driver to stay there and wait for her to come back. He's reluctant. This is a bad neighborhood. Not a good place. On a better night, I would not have come here. Do you know how many taxi drivers been killed in L.A. this year? Now, she gives him half a hundred dollar bill, promising the other half when she returns. I don't know if you can spend a Ripton half hundred dollar bill, even if you have both halves, but he's not worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is weird. I just assumed she'd magic them back together, but it seems like he should be more incredulous. Right. Okay, lady, I shall be here unless there be guns. If there be guns, I will be gone. So prim and out-of-her-depth-looking as ever. This is another thing about Thessaly. She looks really disarming. Right. She walks up to some homeless folks and says that she's looking for a woman. You she's, see? Over by the motel door over there? That's Annie. She's cheap and pretty clean, and she's got a bad habit to feed, so she's not even that particular. Right, but Thessaly is looking for a specific woman, one who is blonde and very strong. That would be Lyta. Right. Superpowered powered Lyta. Yep, and they point out that she is over there. Nearly broke Jerry's jaw when he tried to cop a feel. Right, yeah. He thought she was asleep, so he'd just cop a feel. But he ended up damn near getting his jaw broken. And he says, Some days a man can't win for losing. Yeah, I don't feel very sorry for Jerry, do you? (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. So Thessaly finds Lida sleeping in an alley. In this panel, she kind of looks like she has a beard. What? Oh... Okay, because okay, but that's the hair behind her head lit by the moonlight. <laughs> yeah. So Thessaly with a beard. She Wait. introduces herself here as Larissa. Yeah, that's weird. And she turns into a white bird, which Lyda feels compelled to follow. In Lyda's world, she's in darkness, but she sees this white bird and follows it. That's representing Thessaly to her. Now Lyda completes the trio. We opened on the Virgin Mary. Thessaly is an ancient witch, and Lyda is a mother. Ah. Oh. Hecate all up in this business. As promised, she gives the cab driver the second half of the hundred dollar bill and directs him to the corner of Sweetser and Melrose. You got any ideas what that was all about? Uh-huh. I think the one who broke Jerry's face, she was like a robot space alien, and the other one, she was maybe FBI or something. And that taxi wasn't no taxi. It was a camouflaged government spaceship. You believe any of that shit coming out of your mouth? Hell no. All right, that brings us to the title page, The Kindly Ones 7, and we open on a dark castle, and the three guardians watching the doorway inform us where we are. This is Morpheus's dream castle, and Odin is walking up the path. He arrives and demands Morpheus come out and talk to him, as he does not enter the houses of his enemies. Uh, yes. I wasn't, well, I guess I figured from the broad-brimmed hat on the walking stick that it was probably Odin, mm-hmm. but we aren't really sure until he's asked, and he says, I am called Grim, the Death Blinder, the High One, the Gallows God. He's also got two ravens tagging along, you can see in this corner panel. Oh yeah, that's right. Readers of American gods will specifically remember the Gallows God. Yeah, that's a pretty big plot point. Because that's a big one. Yep. Or, I guess, watchers of the American Gods TV show. Oh, yeah, yeah, might also. I am Odin, son, and your master has done me a great wrong. Greetings, Odin. You are welcome here. Morpheus appears. He's decked out more colorfully than we normally see him. I have written Morpheus appears in a rad new jacket. (laughs) (laughs) He's got kind of this purple Nehru jacket with gold lapels, and his cape now has flames not just at the end, but all the edges and the collar, and it looks totally baller. Yeah, he looks kind of like Prince. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I also want to point out this moment where Odin coughs up blood as he's waiting for Morpheus. Just none of us are as young as we used to be. Yeah, I wonder if Odin actually, like, has old age or if it's something that he kind of goes through. It's in just cycles. one of his aspects. <laughs> right, well, yeah, or like a cyclical thing. Mm-hmm. Greetings, Dream Weaver, hearth's betrayer. I counted you as friend once, but can count you so no more. I shall state my grievance listen. And he explains that Loki, who is far too dangerous to ever be allowed to be free, is free, and it's Morpheus's fault. Yeah, he recaps the binding of Loki by Scotty, under the snake with the venom dripping, all that good stuff. He has figured out that the Loki that came back from the Dreaming at the end of Season of Mists, when Odin had brought him along as part of his entourage to bid for hell, was, quote, Merely a dream thing that screams and curses. A wisp, a fragment that writhes in pain. Yeah, so he says, this is your doing, Weaver, is it not? Yes, I am afraid that it is. He had already escaped you and had found another beneath the earth when I discovered him. I freed that other and placed a dream there in its place. What did you want, eh? A favor from Loki? To place him in your debt? To use him as your agent in some human deal or other? Um, Something like that. Now, Odin referring to Loki as an agent, uh, of course, reminded me of the Marvel series Loki, Agent of Asgard. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. This is an interesting piece of dialogue, and we'll come back to that. Loki has obviously not been Morpheus's agent, as he's wreaking all kinds of fucking havoc in this book. Mm -hmm. He uh, is responsible for having Daniel kidnapped, which is what has put light on the path to revenge. You're a fool, Weaver. Loki has no sense of gratitude. It burns and galls and aches him to be beholden. He is a serpent who must bite your hand even as you save him from a hunter. Loki cannot help striking the hand that aids him, striking with malice and slow poison. That is what he is. That is what he does. Yeah, he talks about some strange rumors here, and he mentions that the raven host will soon be coming to the Dreaming. Yeah, funky things are going on with ravens. He says he can't figure out Morpheus. Is he a spider at the center of his web or a deer in the headlights? Which would you say I am? You're a deep one. But how deep? What's illusion? That's the question. And this is a bad place to talk of illusion. Odin admits there's no real enmity between them. Were I to declare a blood feud with every being ever fooled by Loki, I could begin by killing myself and continue the slaughter until there were neither god nor dwarf nor giant left. It is, after all, what he does. But I am disappointed. Somehow I expected more from you, Dreamweaver. And, for my part, I am sorry to have disappointed you, Odin Battle King. they both take turns teleporting away, leaving scary ghostly shapes in the mist in their wake. There's another good exchange here that kind of came in the middle of that conversation where Morpheus says, only a fool listens to rumors, and Odin retorts, only a fool ignores them. Mm -hmm. Now we cut to Delirium, who is apparently talking to Destiny. Yeah, we see her talking for a good page before we see who she is talking to. She's standing on a path, and we can make out a statue in the background, so if we're very attentive, we can identify this as Destiny's garden. I also think she makes it clear who she's talking to through her dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, she has been looking for her dog Barnabas. No, she is explaining that her dog Barnabas has gone missing. Right, and she's kind of wondering whether or not she should look for him, or where to start. Now, am I remembering correctly that this is not the first we've heard of this story arc? I mean, of this particular story thread? Did we see Delirium looking for Barnabas earlier in this arc somewhere? I think so. I think we saw her sort of waking up and taking note that he was gone. It was when she came back from being 111 perfect tiny multicolored fish. Okay, so we did know about this in advance. And she points out to Destiny that the last time she went looking for someone, it went very well, and uh, Destiny was... The one who got her started on the right track. Yeah, I love that line. It's in character for Delirium to think she did a great job during Brief Lives, but I thought that could also be meta-dialogue, like readers really loved it when she was a regular. Right. Is there a way that we can work in the Barnabas line that she repeats? Um, I would feel infinitely more comfortable in your presence if you would agree to treat gravity as a law rather than one of a number of suggested options. (laughs) Oh yeah, Barnabas is a wise-ass. Destiny says he bears no grudge for the fact that she yelled at him last time they met, but he warns her that her search will have a cost. If you look for your dog, you shall find it. But if you find your dog, you shall find other things also. The choice is yours. Look at Dream. Why does he look like that? Should I go to him? So she's talking about the statue in the garden. He has statues of all seven endless, and they're apparently somewhat empathetic statues, because the Dream one has his face in his hands looking kind of distraught while the destruction one has his back turned and a hobo sling over his shoulder. Right, now this dream statue is pretty obviously invoking his position at the end of brief lives as he had had to kill his son Orpheus. The choice is yours. I think if we read this simultaneously, it will be incomprehensible. But Destiny says two things simultaneously. The choice is yours, as I said. But I would strongly suggest that you let him cope with his problems on his own. The choice, as I said, is yours but your aid could not hurt him, and it might conceivably help. Hooray! Hooray! That was so wondrous! How did you do that? Can you show me how to do that? I can only ever say one thing at once. But destiny has disappeared. Left to herself, Delirium makes her own choice. His sister picks a path for herself and walks it, and leaves that place. Now we cut to a little house. Thessaly's, apparently, where she leads Lyda in and puts her on the bed. She'll have to sleep in the bathtub. Lida, in her head, is still following the white bird. Thessaly opines to herself, well, I've found you. They came through on that much. Lida needs protection, Thessaly says, so she makes up a simple green potion in an actual fucking cauldron. It's a honey base, so it's sticky, and she daubs this green shit on Lida's face. Next, she gets out a black lamb, which are hard to find in West Hollywood. She's going to be your guardian. The lamb, as she's fixing to sacrifice it, begins to squirm and kicks her in the face, drawing blood. Yeah, with the sound effect. Whack! Blood for blood, eh, little lamb? It's been too long since I've needed to sacrifice anything larger than a rabbit. There, let that be a lesson for me, Lida, and for you too, if you can hear me. Nothing is harmless. Nothing is too cute and sweet to be dangerous. Nothing is safe should be talking about herself. She kills the lamb and empties its blood into a large bowl. She uses the blood to make a circle around Lyda's bed, and as she does so, she reads an invocation. If lonely aging gods there be here, let them look elsewhere for food. Seems to be the operative part. I consecrate this circle to her who waits beneath the earth, and to her who makes life on the earth, and to her who shines coldly above the earth. I demand their protection for the woman within. That sounds like the Hecate to me. Yep, she invokes the Hecate and the moon as one of the Hecate. The moon we've sort of seen as her previous patron. Well, patron's not even right, because she kind of enslaved the moon. Back in Game of You. Right. So as she's sitting here, she says, So it's wash off the blood and sleep on the floor, or skip the bath and sleep in the tub. Choices. Always choices. She sits down and begins to read a book on Richard Dad. Richard Dad was an English painter who was committed to Bethlehem Hospital, the original Bedlam, after killing his father. While hospitalized, he painted many highly detailed fairy scenes. In Lyda's mind, she is climbing down a cliff. Descents are always harder than ascents, and this is the hardest descent of her life. Right, she arrives at the bottom at a little desk with a makeup mirror. That's a vanity. Okay. Now I know what vanity means. <laughs> <laughs> she sits and she speaks to various other Lydas in the mirror, herself dressed up in her fancy cocktail dress for her meeting with Eric, herself as a child, herself as a superhero. And the last of them, she sees herself with the green potion smeared on her face. Herself in reality. This is not the first time in the story arc that we've seen this device of Lita talking to reflections of herself. The last time, it was kind of a telling moment when she asked which one is the real me and the reflection replied does it matter Mm -hmm. it's also worth noting here uh, as an important callback that her superhero self refers to herself as the fury Mm -hmm. and now she is about to meet the furies the vision of herself as she is tells her or at least she hears a voice as she's facing it that says she doesn't have to go through with this. She can open her eyes, clean herself up, and walk away. There's always the choice. Not always. Sometimes there just aren't any choices at all. And she punches out the mirror, shattering it. Nobody else is the real Leida. She is. She walks through a desert to an old house, and inside she finds the Hecate. Meanwhile, Morpheus arrives at Fiddler's Green, Yeah, it's worth noting that from here on, through the rest of the issue, it plays out in a kind of Nolan-esque manner. Mm, Um, Multiple scenes carrying on at once. Yeah. Right. And one of them is always the scene between Lyda and the Hecate, Mm -hmm. as other scenes kind of play out in the background. So Gilbert is disappointed in Morpheus. You know, you are the second person today to express their disappointment with me. Do you mean that, Gilbert? Am I really that disappointing? The ladies invite Lyda in, make her comfortable. Mother offers her a fortune cookie. Read it first, then eat the cookie. Let all that do ill take this precedent. Man may his fate foresee but not prevent, and of all axioms this shall win the prize, Tis better to be fortunate than wise. Disappointing? Whom? I'm not sure I would have put it that way myself, not exactly. But I am concerned for you, my lord. For all of us. Fiddler's Green, a.k.a. Gilbert, explains that he is supposed to be a happy place, but even there the sunlight is getting thin. Yep. Yeah, just to clarify for people who haven't been following all the way since Doll's House, Fiddler's Green is a mythical sailor's paradise, but it also appears in the form of author G.K. Chesterton, or Gilbert, in this series. All this, Gilbert says, since Orpheus's death. Morpheus says he's attending to his responsibilities, and they're kind of talking past one another. Gilbert says when he got tired of his responsibilities, he took a break, sort of suggesting this to Morpheus. But Morpheus just says, But because you returned of your own will, you were not punished. Are you? Are you the Furies? Are we the Furies? Are you a hand or an eye or a tooth? No, of course not. I am myself. But I have those things within me. There you go, then, my little scorpion flail. And now we go to a heath, a cursed house upon a heath. This is the House of the Morrigan, where we are told one woman dwells or none, beside a river of blood, with the scent of cordite in the air and shrapnel in the earth. One woman or three or none. Yeah, yeah. There's a raven inside, looking around. A black hound waits by the door. In the garden by the stream, a little girl plays with something yellowed and round that might conceivably be a ball. Though ravens are normally solitary, the Morrigan's raven looks up, sees a flock of ravens, and joins them. I have come a very long way, further than I've ever gone before. I am seeking the Furies. Mother says, not the Furies, my Lobelia. That's such a nasty name. It's one of the things they call women to put us in our place. Do we look furious to you? No, you look very kind, very wise, very gentle, Vitus says. I should point out that they totally look furious here. They all have, like, rows of sharp teeth. Uh, Speaking of rows of sharp teeth... Ooh The Corinthian has arrived at Lyda's house with Matthew. Matthew asks, What'll they say for a cover story if someone finds them, and the Corinthian offhandedly says we can pretend to be cops. Yeah, or just kill them. Yeah, but the pretend to be cops thing. Didn't he pose as a cop when he was a serial killer? Oh, did he? I don't remember that. I got the feeling that it was invoking his career as a serial killer and that it was also invoking Loki and Robin Goodfellow's ruse. Right, they pretended to be cops. To prevent any investigation of Daniel's disappearance. They have a nice little buddy cop banter going on for a tragically short number of panels, but Matthew suddenly feels the urge to go. Right. He is a raven, after all. The Corinthian won't let him leave. You're my partner, like it or not. Walk out on me now, bird, and I wring your scrawny neck. The maiden offers Lyta a scorpion. The mother says, we don't bother anyone. We hate to be a bother, not unless there's good reason to bother somebody. There's a man. I want to do more than bother him. I want to destroy him. Meanwhile, in hell... Yeah, some demons see ravens flying off to join the gathering. In England, Rose Walker hears on the news that the ravens have left the Tower of London despite their wings being clipped. The government spokesman announces that they will not submit to terrorists and says they have ordered a dozen raven chicks from zoos around the country. They fear damage to the tourist trade. The reporter asks about the kingdom falling, and is assured that in this day and age, one must take such superstitions with a grain or two of salt. The superstition goes that if the ravens ever leave the Tower of London, then the crown will fall and with it the kingdom. Okay. Why? Asks one of the Furies. Right, because this man killed Lyda's husband and killed her son isn't that reason enough? No, dearie, it's not. You see, my gosling, the ladies you were talking about can really only avenge blood debts. That's one of the rules. It's the oldest rule. Blyda says he killed my son, that's a blood debt, but they say, not your blood, his. Had he killed his own son, then it would be different. Then, if we wished, we could hound him. We could destroy his life and his world, hound him to the grave and beyond. Lyda turns and walks out into the desert, but the mother calls to her from the door. Daughter? Now she's brandishing a whip made of scorpions end to end. He did kill his own son. Oof. Shit. That's a scary moment. Bad shit's coming from Morpheus. Well, that was fun. A nice rose focal issue with a delightful scary fairy tale in it. Yes, Rose did not find what she came there to find she didn't get a message from her grandma. No, not even the ring. But I can't help but feel that it's significant that Alex has come back into the picture. Mm -hmm. And Thessaly too. Yeah, I will play cards close to the chest because I know that you are reading this series as we cover it. Yeah. uh, Rose's Adventures in England will continue. Oh good. That story's not completely over yet. Yeah, you know, we had a couple of stories that we cut away from that we haven't gone back to. Mm -hmm. We didn't check in on Lucifer and Loki and Puck at all. No, Uh, we sort of checked in on Loki in that we know now that people are looking for him. or looking for baby Daniel. Right. And we know that Odin knows that Loki is missing. Yeah, this is a really complex story. There's a lot of pieces on the board. Yeah. And we are not visiting all of them every issue. No, yeah, it's... (laughs) It's piecemeal. It can be slow going. You had speculated in a previous episode, I think, that somebody was trying to set up a war between the Dreaming and Asgard. No, my theory was between the Dreaming and the fairies. Okay, okay. The idea of any enmity between Morpheus and Odin was quite quickly dealt with here. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Odin came to yell at him and then just said, well, Loki fools everybody, makes sense, and went on his way. Yep. He's a nasty little sneak thief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we haven't checked in with Ferry and these pair of issues either. Yeah, that was one of the things that came to mind. But yeah, a good couple of issues. Very atmospheric and suspenseful and scary. Yeah, I found Rose's time in the nursing home very interesting. Like you said, very compelling despite not all that much of excitement happening. Certainly the reintroduction of Paul and Alex is relevant. And I, I just, I like having mortal perspectives on the weird shit that's going on. And Rose is among our favorite of those perspectives. It's nice to have an issue to herself. But I should point out, you say that she's a mortal perspective, but she's not a mortal oh, perspective. Although she no longer ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you have me there. <laughs> what did you think of the Flying Children? Oh, that was a good, scary story. You Mm -hmm. know, that guy was a jerk. Yeah. That's a common, like, fairy tale archetype is the the clever heel. The sort of, yeah, the cad. Yeah. Yeah, he's clever, but not quite clever enough. I really liked the way that his children descended upon him like a flock of birds Mm -hmm. and pecked him to death. Yeah. Sort of his his broken promises came back on him. Yeah, as you knew that they would. Fairy tales often have this kind of great structure of, like, the first half poses a series of questions and the second half answers them you know? Right, or the first half establishes consequences and the second delivers them. Right. Yeah, and in a sense that's what we've seen in large, in long-term storytelling throughout the series. We were informed ages and ages ago that if you spill family blood, then the kindly ones come upon you. Right, yes. Odin's conversation with Morpheus is interesting for another reason. I like the question that Odin puts forth, is Morpheus a mastermind or a fool? That is a point that's going to come up at least once more. Yeah, and and the way that Delirium sees him, still, you know, with his face in his hands, still desperately in mourning from the events of Brief Lives. Yeah, I think in Game of You, was it, when he had just broken up with somebody, we saw him sort of throwing himself into his work to hide his sadness. So this idea of him putting on a brave face makes a lot of sense with the character. Yeah, but I, I think it goes back to the same question that Odin is asking. Mm-hmm. Delirium's perception of him is rather without agency. Yeah, And Odin is kind of asking the same thing. Like, are you, are you the master of your fate, or are you a deer in the headlights? Right, right. He's an illusionist, mm-hmm. and we don't know if he has a master plan or just the appearance of one. At the same time, we don't know if he's hapless or just... Has the appearance of being hapless. We don't know the extent to which he's making decisions or being driven by something. So, so join us in our next Sandman episode for a murder of ravens. But first, join us next week as John Constantine catches up on a little reading with the Diary of Danny Drake. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is composed and performed by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguise.blueberry.com. It's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us to ask questions or just chat about comics, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach Eric on Twitter at Vertiguys, You can reach me at and You can reach us by email, vertiguys at gmail.com. If you like our show, if you could leave us a positive review on whatever podcast listening platform you're finding us on, we will read good reviews from the Apple Podcasts app on the air. We have one from the Juggerduck who says, <laughs> These two are fun, humorous, and knowledgeable. Thanks, Juggerduck. Thanks, Juggerduck. But yeah, tell a friend about Vertiguis. Spread the word. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks everybody. The art in this issue, as I mentioned, there are Whoa, that was fucking fast. Did it break? It ripped a little bit here where it meets the thing. Uh, well, they're, like, they were $6 chairs. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, that's not a big deal. And I basically find them too uncomfortable. Like, I figured they might be okay for someone of your size. <laughs> but. <laughs> See, I was assuming that. <laughs> I thought it would be ungracious to suggest that putting me in this chair was some kind of practical joke. <laughs> you don't like it? <laughs> but they it's are... a little, it's a little low. Whenever anybody puts me in a lower chair than they are in, I feel like they're just trying to accentuate the negative. (laughs) I'm in a low chair too. (laughs) (laughs) For all your chair reviews, Vertigo. (laughs)